Some of you are probably wondering what I'm doing up here. I'm kind of wondering that myself. A few years ago, I did a, a program at Regent College. And while I was there, I did a course on the Gospel of John. And it quickly became one of my favorite courses. And while working on, uh, while working on a paper there, I did some research into John chapter 9. And what I found there, I, I quickly grew to love. And a few weeks ago, I was speaking with Alan after, after church. And I said, if you want a break from preaching, I'd be willing to preach on John 9. Had I known that that would fall on this week, the week we're celebrating Alan, and him such a gifted speaker, I might have thought twice. <laughs> the plan of attack. So I'm going to be focusing mainly on the literary elements of John 9, in, particularly, in particular, irony. So I'm going to take a moment or two to define irony. And then I'm going to give a bit of background to help you see the irony in John. Then I'm going to discuss some of the elements of irony. And then finally, we're going to close with reading John. And so I hope that by doing that, I can read the passage. You can see what I've been talking about and appreciate it. And I hope you'll appreciate it like I do. And then to conclude, I've got two brief points, and that'll be it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today. We thank you so much for bringing us here together. We thank you for celebrating Alan and Sheena. And we ask you to please illuminate this text. Thank you for it. Uh, and we pray your blessing on this day. Amen. Now that I've laid out the plan of attack, I'm going to diverge for one brief moment. At the very opening of this uh, passage, there's a, a discussion of why this man is born blind. And his disciples ask Jesus, who sinned? Was it him and his father? And Jesus quickly says, it wasn't him or his parents uh, that sinned. So there's a couple of things. Emphatically, we cannot say that suffering is a result of sin. And the other thing is that if you read the translation, a lot of times our translations would say something like, um, this man sinned so that we can uh, see God's work done through him. But in Greek, it's, that's a bit of a smoothing over. What is a different translation, uh, what might be more accurate, would be to say something like, this man sinned, God's work can be demonstrated through him. So perhaps it's worth remembering when we encounter suffering, though we love the question why, we want to see why, why, why. It might be worth putting that question aside and seeing the how. How is God working through this? Thank you. Anyway, that didn't really fit with irony, so I thought I'd stick it right to the start. What is irony? I'm going to read a, a brief definition. I've got a slide here. Um, dramatic irony involves a situation in a play or narrative in which the audience shares with the author knowledge of which a character is ignorant. The character acts in a way grossly inappropriate to the actual circumstances or expects the opposite of what fate holds in store or says something that anticipates the actual outcome, but not at all in the way he means it. So for irony to work, there's two levels of meaning. There's the level that the characters see and understand and they're working with, and then there's a, a second higher level of meaning that the author and the readers share. And it's those two come in conflict, and the conflict can be humorous or, or tragic, and that takes place very much in John 9. So to understand the irony, 
what we first need to do is understand the higher meaning that we have here. So I'm going to read from John 1, the prologue. This is where John outlines the story that he's telling. I'm just going to read it. It's not going to be boring. Follow along if you want. John 1. Every, pretty much every statement in here can be found reflected in the story. So I encourage you to listen to these words. Keep them in mind, especially when we're reading through the, the John 9 chapter later on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's give, a, let's give an example of irony before we uh, go forward. Irony is when the, when the Romans nailed the sign above Jesus' head on the cross, King of the Jews. They meant it as a slight. They were making fun of Jesus. He's a nobody from from Nazareth, and he's pretending to be a king. They're making fun of the Jews. Look at this people and their, their pathetic king who here is, is slowly dying on the cross. It's, a, it's an insult, but at a higher meaning, the sign was totally accurate. This was the king of the Jews, but not only that, this is king of kings, lord of the cosmos. These are the ways the two levels of meaning interact. Okay, so in John, We've got a slide here. The Pharisees tell falsehoods, and the blind man embraces truth. The blind man tells the truth, and the Pharisees embrace falsehood. In this narrative, we start out with a, a man born blind. And I should remind you that uh, John loves symbolism. He, one of his big symbols in the gospel is light and dark. Here we have the man born blind into the dark. We got the Pharisees, who should be the light. But they're, they're moving in opposite directions. The man instantly receives his physical sight, and slowly throughout the story, he develops his spiritual sight. He starts out talking about Jesus, this man Jesus, later on, this prophet. And then finally, at the end, he becomes his disciple, and he worships Jesus. The Pharisees, meanwhile, are moving in the opposite tra trajectory. They start out a little bit confused, they're wondering, is this man from God? He seems to be breaking the Passover, or the Sabbath, rather. 
But he's doing these miraculous deeds. But slowly and slowly, they push these from their minds. And at the end, they're in complete blindness. They have nothing to do with Jesus. They've cast him and his disciples out. They seek to kill him. Another thing of note is that in this passage, John frequently refers to uh, the verb we know, or, or not knowledge. And there's two forms of know in, in Greek. There's one that uh, is just a basic word to know, and there's another one that relates to sight. John exclusively used the one that uh, refers to sight. So in this passage, I might even, I'm going to switch when the Pharisees speak about knowing something that's wrong. I might say, we see, because that's going to capture more of the flavor. So we got the two, the two mixing up. And the other thing is that the Pharisees, as they're talking, very often, not exclusively, but most of the time, they say things we know, and it's wrong. They're telling falsehoods. And meanwhile, each time they say it, they're pushing the blind man closer and closer to authentic belief. The blind man, he claims ignorance a lot of times. He says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then he speaks truth. And the Pharisees listen to this, and they descend deeper and deeper into blindness. Okay, next slide. So, who's on trial and who is guilty? The Pharisees are basically holding a trial. They, they see Jesus, they want to judge him. They're trying to find, gather evidence against him. And they're the ones who have taken this role as uh, judge and jury. And they seek, they seek to condemn Jesus. They seek to condemn his witness and anyone who lines with him. But the irony is that with every move they make, with every word they speak, they end up convicting themselves. Jesus, far from being the one being judged, is the judge. And everything they do is flipped on its head. Isn't this the man that was born blind? Next slide. The neighbors are wondering, isn't this the man who was born blind, the beggar? And some say, it is him. And others say, no, it only seems like him. The man says, I am he. On the one level, he's the same man. He's the blind man. This was, this was a true miracle. And he recovered his sight. But on the other hand, it's somewhat completely different. As uh, John tells us in the prologue, whoever receives Jesus is given the right to become children of God. We have someone who seems the same, but is someone new. Our next statement is from the Pharisees. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. In this statement, the Pharisees, on their level, they seek to, um, to get the, the blind man. Come to our side. Give glory to God. What they mean is, tell the truth. Don't uh, sign up with this Jesus character. Give glory to God. Um, we know, we can see this man is a sinner. Each phrase backfires. We can see this man is a sinner demonstrates that they are blind. Give glory to God, far from saying, don't give glory to Jesus. When they say, give glory to God, they are saying, give glory to Jesus. We are disciples of Moses. You are this fellow's disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Here, we are disciples of Moses. I don't know if this is a great analogy. It's like saying, uh, you are a fan of Wayne Gretzky. We're fans of Dave Semenko. It's completely backwards. <laughs> In every part of this, uh, of John, 
it shows that Jesus is ahead of uh, Moses. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus himself tells the Pharisees, if you understood John, you would know that he testifies about me. And just in the last chapter, he tells them, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly putting himself ahead of Abraham. In the prologue, John the Baptist says, um, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's putting Jesus ahead of himself. And then right at the very start, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The disciples, they're, they're completely mistaken here. They say, we are disciples of Moses, like it's supposed to advance their position. But really, they're just putting themselves in second place. They should be listening to the blind man. And furthermore, when they say, you are the disciple of, of uh, Jesus, that hadn't happened yet. They're pushing, ironically, they're the ones who are pushing uh, the blind man into discipleship. And then finally, as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. This is supposed to be another, another put down. He's a nobody. He's from the backwoods. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Um, but really, they're just, once again, revealing their ignorance. They are completely blind at this point. Um, the blind man himself points this out. When he hears this, he marvels. He's like, how can you, the teachers of Israel, not know where this man comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. So he says, if you just look at the works he's done, who has ever heard of a man being healed who was born blind? We know that only Yahweh can do this. If you knew this, if you paid attention to this, then you would know where he's from, that he's from God. He's not a sinner. So, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So this, these are the final words of the story. Jesus is saying them to the Pharisees. The Pharisees have sought to, uh, I don't know, seek clarity. It's like, are you saying that we're blind too? And this is the final twist that Jesus gives. He says, if you had been blind, if you had said you have no knowledge, then maybe you would have been able to see Jesus being the light of the world. He said, I can work with that. I can teach you. But because you say you see, you, are, you remain in your guilt. It's the very fact that the, the Pharisees, they've got this confidence. They've got this knowledge that they know how the Bible works. They know how the story goes. And because of this, they are blind. They meet Yahweh face to face. They meet God's Messiah, the, the very one that they've been waiting for and studying about and reading about their whole lives. And not only do they miss him, they condemn him. They treat him as an enemy. Okay, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Once again, I, um, I encourage you to keep the, the words of the prologue in mind. The more you can keep those at in the, the back of your mind as you're hearing this, the more you'll see the irony. You can follow along. This is John 9. Um, and then you can pay attention, light and dark, these themes that John has developed. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of God, him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming and when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man, called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, and does not, for he does not keep Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is, a, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? And then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We can see that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is amazing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, 
do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe him, believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I think there's two questions for me that are raised in this story. Apart from it being, a, I find, an enjoyable story, it's, it's, I like to imagine John the Apostle almost giving a wink as we read it, as we see these, these uh, ironies unfolding. But there's two questions for us, the reader, beyond the enjoyment. And the first is, who do we most associate ourselves with? Who do we most reflect? Are we the man born blind, or are we the Pharisees? When I go and I read the Bible, am I reading about a God who thinks what I think, who agrees with what I say, who likes the way I spend my time and money? Or am I reading about a God, am I reading about Jesus, who's providing light, curing me of my blindness, and leading me to, to truth? Am I descending into blindness, or am I descending into truth? John Calvin wrote that the human heart is an idol-making factory. I believe that the, the Pharisees had constructed an idol by re reading their, their scripture this way. They were expecting a God who would come and, and conquer their enemies. They were expecting a God who would come and justify them and elevate them for their loyalty. They were not expecting a God who would come as a suffering servant. They were not coming, expecting a God who was coming to, to reach out to those on the outside and bring them in. They were not expecting a, a God who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The second question is, um, which story do I most believe? There's the two stories. There's the, the story that the Pharisees were dwelling in, the Romans were dwelling in. For them, this is an ordinary man, kind of strange, but nothing special. Or there's the story that John's telling us. John's telling us a deeper story. Which do we believe? And when I say believe, what I mean is when we go out these doors, when we talk to people we meet, when we talk to the people we love, the way we talk to them, the way we treat those uh, we disagree with, like I said, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, what story do we believe when we, uh, when we do these things? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And from, his, um, and, and from him we have received grace upon grace. For the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God. Jesus the Son, he has made him known.